Hello and welcome to the Cleon Tower podcast. This week I'll be talking to singer and guitarist Alastair McLean about his lyrics. The band finish up their US tour this week in Portland and Seattle, so head over to theclientel.co.uk for more information. A few things to mention about this episode. We talk a lot about the book of Alastair's lyrics, which is called Exhaust Fumes, Magnolias and Light. It was published by Julian Hyde at Edge of the Lane Press in 2022. It had a very limited run, but if you can get hold of a copy, I would definitely recommend it, because it's a beautiful book, which contains not just lyrics, but essays and artwork by Alistair. Alistair and I also talk about three spoken word clientele songs, Losing Haringey, The Green Man, and The Museum of Fog. If you haven't heard those songs, it's probably worth listening to them before the podcast, because we jump right in without really explaining what happens in the songs. So do check them out. And uh, one last thing is that we recorded this conversation on Zoom a few weeks ago, and Alistair was using a very, very nice ribbon microphone, which unfortunately was quite directional, which means that it was a bit of a struggle to mix. So thank you so much to Johnny White and to Dave Collingwood for their assistance with the audio. Uh, So I started the chat by asking Alistair what he was reading at the moment, and he mentioned a contemporary book that was recommended to him that he couldn't understand a single word of, Um, So I've taken out that bit because I didn't want to offend the author or the person who recommended it. Um, But it led to an interesting conversation about the differences between books and music. So that's where we'll start. It's interesting, though, because I think with music, that that, that focus on meaning, it's not that it's less important, but you can enjoy a song and not understand it a lot more than you can enjoy a book that you don't understand. Of course, yeah. I mean, um, you don't have to understand music. That's what's so wonderful about it. Mm. That's what I love about it, you know, that um, you can just dance to it or it can remind you of when you were young or or it can be really magnificent while being incredibly clumsy in terms of meanings. And um, that's why I decided to make music, really, when I was like 19, 20, rather than try to become a poet, because I thought, you know, I can get, just get away with so much more in music. Mm. And, and, and in some ways, it's much as I, I love poetry, but it's, it's a more mysterious thing. It sort of it hits you in a more primordial, um, unconscious way than poetry does. So, yeah, I agree with you. And you can just get away with saying, yeah, 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 as well, of course, which you can't really do in poetry. But. And, and and that can be magnificent. Yeah. Which it wouldn't be in poetry. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the other thing I like, I love, like, a Bob Dylan song like Isis, where there's kind of a story, but basically when I'm listening to it, I kind of drift off and forget what's happening because I'm getting so involved with the music. And I love that feeling of being led along... It feels like a story, but then you're not actually sure what's happening or who's where, you know. I love it too. There's no clue really what happens in that song, but it feels utterly compelling at the same time. Yeah, it definitely does. I was going to ask you a bit about the recurring images in your songs, because I, I love that whenever I listen to a clientele song, it feels like I'm going back into a familiar place with the same images and landmarks, the, the streets and the the motorways and the rain. <laughs> and can you talk a bit about how important that sense of place is in your songs? And, and are, you always, are you always trying to conjure the same place? 
I don't know. I feel like it's not even particularly, um, you know, conscious. I love the idea of repetition. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple of books that, that really opened my mind to this. I mean, one was um, a book called Jealousy by, um, by Alain Rob Grier. And it's, it's a story of somebody who's waiting in a colonial outpost of France. He's waiting for something that I don't think ever really quite gets made clear, but it feels like he's waiting for his, his lover to come home. And he constantly, obsessively repeats the idea or the image of a, of a, of a big centipede coming down the wall. And it just, it's like, it becomes like a rhythm, you know. And um, another, another, great, another great book that, that I read at the same time, which opened my mind to it, was a book called Gradiva by um, Wilhelm, Wilhelm Jensen, or Jensen, which is one of Freud's favourite books. And it's the story of an archaeologist in Pompeii. He heads out early, early in the morning in the, in the very hot sunshine, and he constantly sees the image, the emblem almost, of a walking woman, a woman who, a Roman woman who's walking, who's putting her foot forward. And he sees this image over and over and over again. The Surrealists love this book because uh, it's just, it's so kind of obsessive, inexplicable, the walking woman. And unfortunately, at the end of the book, it all gets neatly tied up, but they kind of said, get rid of the last chapter. Um, so those ideas of repetition, I I really thought, you know, it's like kind of you read and you think, oh, you can do this. You know, some people would say it's obsessive. Some people would say there's something wrong with me. Some people would say it's boring, but you can do it if you want to do it. And that really led me to not be afraid to repeat images, to just almost like leitmotifs in, in music that you can you can have the image come back and back and back and back again, because it forms a kind of rhythm of its own and a meaning of its own. Um, so, you know, I, I like it. I like the fact that it's it's a bit surrealistic, you could say, with a small s, you know, that that it's a bit dreamlike. You know, there's, a, there's the idea of that you go round in a circle, round and round in a dream, and you come back to the same things all the time. I really like, or a fever. Mm. I really like that idea. I like that idea in, in poetry or music. Yeah. Do you know the Sirens chapter of Ulysses? I don't. I've never read Ulysses, I'm afraid. Oh, it's good. You're in, in yeah. for a treat. I've heard <laughs> it's all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in Sirens, he's trying to make language musical, basically, and he does it by having several phrases which are repeated, but every time they're repeated, there's just slight variations in it. So it becomes this kind of, you know, I suppose symphony of all these different sentences coming and going, repeating and varying slightly. It's really beautiful. It's particularly good if you hear it being read, if you listen to the audiobook, it makes a lot more sense. I must, I must read that. But, but I mean... Music is repetition, really, isn't it? Mm. Like, um, there isn't much music that isn't repetition in some way, that doesn't have repetition in some way. So it's quite interesting to extend that to language, I think. Yeah. Especially when it's in a musical setting. Yeah. We talked before about Garden Eye Mantra, the, the last verses of that, where you're repeating the same images, but they're slightly different each time. They're varying. 
And that's what makes it really compelling, I think. Well, you know, it's easier to it's easier to sing it than, you know, <laughs> stops people drifting off to sleep. But yeah, it's the, the same idea that, that an image is is repeating and cycling through again and again and again in an almost obsessive way. But but and again, maybe it's just that there is something wrong with me. But it feels to me that it's it's that that kind of repetition is in itself sometimes quite beautiful. Yes, it definitely is. But it's like you're trying to recapture something, to regain something, and each repetition is another attempt at it or something. Yeah, with a slightly different um, a slightly different take on it. But yeah, it's melancholy in that way too. I think. But but yeah, I mean, I've read reviews before where people said uh, Alistair McLean's attempts at uh, repeating images are far less interesting than he thinks they are. So you know, <laughs> oh, maybe maybe it's only me. I don't know. Well, no, I definitely like it. <laughs> maybe there's something wrong with you too. You <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think almost certainly. <laughs> um, one of the things I love about your lyrics is I think they're often filled with a a real sense of wonder. You're often describing things which might be every day, but you're kind of elevating them. And one of my favourite lyrics from the new album, it's from Hey Siobhan, which is, On a still Edwardian street with a daylight moon impossibly clear. It's so simple because it's literally just saying, look at this beautiful thing. You know, but I just love the simplicity of it and the sense of wonder. But there's a, there's another side to that, I mean, which is that that particular lyric that you never could be on that street and you never could be in that moment mm. because it's impossible. Right. It couldn't be that that clear. Right. I, I, lo- I love those double meanings, you know, that you can get with simple songs, with pop songs. I love that there, there's you can have a kind of subtext of, of, of real melancholy, you know. Because my, my reading of it was that by Edwardian you're saying it kind of looks Edwardian, but... Yeah, I, I, and Edwardian architecture, which you get in the leafy areas of North London where the clientele reside, you know. <laughs> um, oh, but I suppose you mean... So you mean, like, the moon, it, it, it couldn't exist because you can't ever see it that clearly in the day kind of thing? Yeah. Mm. There's a place I see us both, you know, that's that, that it's, it's just a fantasy. It's in a... It's, you know a vision as opposed to reality and it never could be reality. Right. But it, it's weird because I guess my take on it was it is lovely when you do see the moon on a clear summer's day. You know? Well, it, it is lovely indeed. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's what we're saying, that there are multiple readings, I suppose, yeah, yeah. In, in a simple pop song and that's that's what makes it such a beautiful, you know, art form. Yeah. In summary, it's lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interview uh, over. Interview over, yeah. <laughs> Um, you mentioned earlier about having ambitions as a poet before. Do you think there is a different life where you could have been a, a writer, not a musician? Well, my ambitions as a poet were to keep myself from writing poetry. Right. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I think music is very forgiving, isn't it, to, mm. to words. And um, I don't know if I would have had the talent to, or, or the originality to be a poet, but... Uh, I, I know that to begin with, when we were doing the clientele, I felt like it was perfectly, it was it was perfectly legitimate to take a, a, 
couple of lines from a poem and reset them into a song. You know, so like in um, Impossible, there's, you know, your hair wet and your arms full, you are dead, you're alive, which is, I mean, it's not from an obscure poem, it's from The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. But I like the idea of taking that little bit of flotsam from a poem that I really, I really liked and putting it in the setting of one of my own songs. But I, I don't know, as time went on, I, I became less happy with that approach and then decided to try and be a bit more original myself. So, I mean, if there's a, there's a book that came out with um, a bunch of clientele lyrics and some other bits and pieces that I wrote, fragments and poems and things um, called Exhaust Fumes, Magnolias and Light. And I didn't get anyone writing to me to slag me off about the other stuff I wrote in there. So, you know, um, maybe one day I'll, I'll, I need to sit down with a sensible editor, I think, and just to get them to tell me, don't do that, mate. Don't do that. You know, that's, that's probably the way forward if I ever wanted to be anything other than a, a musician and lyricist, I think. Well, I was, I was just going to ask you about that book, actually, because I love it. I think it's a beautiful book because it's a collection of such disparate things um the, the the longer prose sections are brilliant and the lyrics work very well on the page i think which doesn't always happen with lyrics yeah i think that lyrics only really work uh with both the music behind them and the understanding that they that the words in a song have to work with the way that the singer sings like the shape of their mouth the way that the, what they can and can't do and, and, and their accent, you know, what, what notes they can and can't sing. So that limits the choice of words that you have in a song to start with. Yeah. You know, um, I read, I was looking through the book because I knew you wanted to talk about lyrics in this, in this podcast. And I, and I found myself getting a bit irritated with <laughs> myself by the, the, the slightly coy kind of chapter headings like red brick the motorway town and they were all supposed to be a bit like a little bit humorous you know or absurd in the way that they overlap with each other so much it's like the the taxonomy that that, that of the chinese emperor that borges talks about where you know he asked the wise men the, the chinese emperor asked the wise men to put the the um everything he owns into a taxonomy into a list of different sections and that they they come up with things like um, animals that seem like a distance from flies uh, <laughs> is one one subset, and then others is another subset, and then suckling pigs is a third subset. And it was a kind of you know it was kind of supposed to be a bit absurd in that way, but I don't know if it came across. I was reading, I felt a bit embarrassed for myself <laughs> as I read it, you know. Uh, but but some of the, I mean some of the lyrics work as lyrics, I think. And the the thing is that. You know, with um, with the music that I've made, I've always wanted to make. I don't. I've never wanted to make statements of any sort. You know, I've always wanted to make um, like a song or, or or a recorded piece of music that you can play back in your home, and it's like walking into a picture. You know, mm. um, or I, I was always trying to paint pictures with music, but not not like not like watercolor pictures, but more like sort of something condensed, something hard, like jewels or stained glass. You know, that's the way I saw it. Really hard, simple images with space and, and light in them. And then, and then try and put them together like, like the jewels on a, 
on a necklace and that's the song you know that's that's how i always uh, have have done it um and it doesn't always make sense it doesn't make sense as a statement it doesn't always work on the page it's about the actual recording that's that's the the finished thing you know that's that's where these that's where it makes sense to me anyway but i suppose that it's not as if people are buying the the clientele lyric book who to read poetry they're buying it because they like the the music and because i mumble so much so they want to know what the words actually are you know i just feel reading through them reading through the lyrics it feels like you don't put a foot wrong i think sometimes when you read lyrics you think oh that's a bit you know gauche or you've just tried to rhyme something there of i feel like i definitely do put a foot wrong okay. i think <laughs> um but but then that's selected lyrics as well isn't sure. it you know so i probably that the, they were probably chosen for the ones where it, there was less gaucheries involved um, I, I i really love the kind of childhood sketches you've included in there including some spooky stories you you wrote when you were younger can i can, yeah. I, can i read the tv room you certainly can but <laughs> but let's bear in mind let's set the context it was actually my sister my right. younger sister who wrote this oh okay because uh, i don't refer to myself in the third person usually so i was gonna, I was gonna say <laughs> Go ahead, please. Read okay. it. I'm just going to open a can of beer. Excuse sure, me go for it. Away from the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> the TV room. We were sitting, talking in the TV room. Suddenly, Alistair said, Get out of here quick. So we all raced out. When we were safely in the caravan, he said breathlessly, The shadows. <laughs> <laughs> You see, nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, we were in a in a caravan park in the north of Scotland. That's where we were staying for our holidays, and there was like a little TV room there. We were, we went to watch Doctor Who and 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 so on. Yeah. But yeah, there's a whole like she's got a whole file of those kind of right strange happenings. We called ourselves the Strange Happenings Investigation Team, nice. and then we thought about what the acronym would spell. So it changed teams, changed to group very quickly. <laughs> and, um, uh, I was definitely old enough to know better, but my, my sister Anne was, um, you know, she's four years younger than me, so she was brought along with it. And it, it all came from reading, yeah. you know, the books that I was lucky enough my mum used to give to me, like The Dark is Rising or The Owl Service by Alan Garner or Astacote by Penelope Lively. Mm. You know, there's there's lots of them. And, and so we believed them, though. We lived those books. We didn't think of them as fiction. We thought of them as blueprints to, to, to you know, the the other side of the mirror i suppose mm. and um so we formed this this group and we used to go out at night into the woods opposite our house two in the morning carrying knives from the kitchen looking for monsters and wow god knows what our parents would have thought if they'd caught us but they never did yeah i suppose that's the amazing thing about what's called low fantasy as opposed to high fantasy is that it feels like it could be part of our world it, you know, in the books it is. It's kind of a mixture of our world and another world. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, w one of the really amazing things about the Alan Garner books and the books that he's written since for adults is just how incredibly well-researched they are. Mm. I mean, the guy learnt Welsh before he wrote The Owl Service because he wanted to write a story based on the the, the, the Mabinogion. Mm. And uh, it's written in Welsh and he didn't want the kind of the 18th century 
translation by some tough lady. Mm. So he learned Welsh. And, 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 you know, you read him and, and, and you, you know that he knows, he knows what he's talking about. And I love that. I love where the two worlds kind of align in some kind of a way, in a way that when you read someone like Tolkien, it's like, oh, the baddies have got Turkish names, you know? What? Why, wait, why is this guy talking in a, with a Welsh accent and he's in the same town as this other hobbit <laughs> who talks with a Scottish accent? It's just so stupid, you know? <laughs> and you wouldn't get that in something like Susan Cooper or Alan Garner. And, and mm. also what you would get is, is, a, is just a tremendous feeling of, you know, of place too. And, and that's where the fantasies or the, or the stories begin is, is in the place. It's in the, the atmosphere of a place. And I just responded to that as a child so much that I would end up uh, breathlessly muttering the shadows to my younger <laughs> sister and forcing everyone to run out of the TV room back to the caravan. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, that's, that's what I love about Redshift, Alan Garner, is that it's about place, but it's about place and time, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's all these times converging in one place. Yeah in a kind of circular loop, the same story being told over and over again. Yeah. You know, and, and, and this is what I love about Alan Garner as well. And I, I was, I was going to talk about this Iris Murdoch quote. I think it's from The Good Apprentice. And one of the characters said, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in the supernatural, but I do believe in signs. Mm. And I thought when I, when, I, when I read that, I don't understand what that means. Like, what do you mean you believe in signs? But you don't have to explain it. It's like, okay, you don't believe in divinity, you don't believe in superna- in the supernatural, like because I don't either. But you do believe in signs. What signs just appear. And and this is Alan Garner, this is what he's doing there, you know, that that, that there are signs, that there are things that are repeating like in a closed loop. But there's never any attempt to explain why. Or, or, or to look at anything kind of numinous behind that. It's just about the signs come, the, the, the repetition comes. And that's what makes it so spooky, I think. Yeah. I mean, the inspiration for Redshift is that brilliant piece of graffiti he saw, wasn't it? Do you know that story? No, about, tell me. It's about, I'm going to forget the names, but it's basically, you know, um, someone loves someone else. And that was written on a wall. And then someone had written underneath, not really, not anymore. The exact bit of graffiti that Alan Garner saw in a train station was two lovers' names written in chalk, and then beneath that, written in lipstick. Not really now, not anymore. And that was the whole inspiration for Red Shift. So he, this idea that... He, he's, I think this might be on the backlisted episode where they talk about Redshift, but um, Alan Garner's apparently very into the idea that the stories, yeah, come to him as signs as opposed to him kind of writing them, you know, that he's channeling yeah. them somehow, I suppose. Yeah, and it's really easy to sound like a real tit yeah. if you're saying that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, in his case, I entirely believe it, Yeah, you know. And I mean, there, there, I think there's probably a, a, a greater or a lesser way that can work. It can work, I think, for me in a more, much more humble way than Alan Garner, but it works for me that I will get an image and I don't know where it's come from. 
and it's probably come from my unconscious but because by definition it's it I don't have access to my unconscious so it's the same thing in a way that you're like this thing is now in my head and it has to be made into a piece of art but I didn't ask for it and I didn't go looking for it and in fact in a lot of in a lot of ways I would lead a more dignified and um happier life if I didn't have to do this <laughs> it's like a curse you know um but but I think for him it's uh I mean he's a, he's he's marked by genius I would say mm. Alan Garner you know he's he's out of all the the children's authors I I listed I think that he's the one who is the true kind of the true exceptional voice I I love his work so much mm. and and I have all my life you know yeah. There's a really beautiful essay at the end of the book, at the end of your book, which is in a section called Over to the West, a King Sleeps in the Hill, which is a line that obviously ended up being used on Chalk Flowers on the new album. Yeah. And it's an amazing piece of writing because it seems to sum up so much about the clientele and about your lyrics because it's about memory and childhood and nostalgia, the importance of place. And I wondered how important that essay is to the album. In some ways, it feels like it's the kind of the key that unlocks it, particularly the more kind of autobiographical elements. Yeah, I think that there is a way that you could you could look at that particular essay and, and talk about um, the next record that came. I don't feel myself that the record needs unlocking in terms of my own personal you know history or my life because I, I I really would hope that the album speaks to people about their own lives but yeah I mean it's the kind of the strand that goes through everything I know I suppose all my life is that these symbols these few you know you know the back of the Scott Scott Four Scott Walker record the, the Camus quote that the Seuds all use, it's their Camus quote, a man's life is is a slow detour to d- rediscover the, the great and simple images in whose presence his heart first opened. And these are those images, you know, these are the, the sense of place that's in the dark is rising, the sense of place that's in Alan Garner and, and in all those many, many different and in many many very beautiful accounts of you know, King Arthur, you know, and Merlin, and from mythology, and um, how those how how do you fit Merlin into a commuter town? Mm. You can't, right? It doesn't fit. They're like chalk and cheese. But but it was my thing that I wanted to do that because I wanted to find him somewhere or, or King Arthur as a child in that commuter town, and that effort that kind of attempt to do that to create that aesthetic was the first piece of art I ever really made mm. you know because it meant so much to me and it and it and it, it was something I had to I had to believe in really as a child because I was so bored and so often ill that um yeah it just started to invent things invent things around that those images and this essay that you mentioned definitely 
it, it traces that from childhood to adolescence to much later to, to being in London and being a grown up and, you know, having a musical career, I suppose. So I think you're right. It does, it, it does answer a lot around some of the symbolism or images that I like, but I would hope that people listening to the new record would have their own response to it and make it their own because it's not mine anymore. I'm trying to sell it to them, you know, and once they buy it, it ain't mine anymore. It's theirs. If they stream it, it's still mine. But if they buy it, it's theirs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that you need it to understand the album or have a relationship with the album, but for for me, it definitely felt like it uncovered some of the mystery of it in some ways, I think. I, I can see why you would say that, yeah. I, I'm, you know, I, as I say, I think there's something wrong with me, you know. I think there's, <laughs> I think there's just... Uh, I, I kind of assume or expect that everybody will understand what I'm talking about as if they all had the same background as me. I used to love the idea that any three or four people who grew up in the place we grew up at the same time we grew up would have formed the clientele themselves right? without us being involved. You know, I love that idea. That's quite Borges, isn't it? Because doesn't he have that idea about Cervantes? I suppose it is, yeah. yeah. I suppose it is, but, you know, but who would want to? You know, like, <laughs> maybe you, you would want to write the Quixote yourself, but would you want to to start recording um, It's Art, Dad? <laughs> you probably, <laughs> probably wouldn't. Uh, I don't know. I'll give it a bloody good go. But I think um, I, I really like what you said there about will anyone know what I'm talking about? Because there's one bit in that essay. Sorry, I know we keep talking about this essay, but... There's one bit in the essay that I absolutely love because I know exactly what you're talking about, which is where you describe having this childhood memory of going sledging and then kind of in the same memory taking acid. But you you realise that they can't possibly be the same memory because you're a completely different age. Yeah. You, you say that one of the things that gives the memory its staying power is its incoherence. And I absolutely identify with that because... I have those memories myself of childhood and, and you know, of, yeah, I remember when I was at university, when I try and remember things like that, I remember the last few weeks of university were very kind of turbulent and emotional and a lot of things happened. And when I remember it, they're in the wrong order because that can't possibly have happened before this, you know? <laughs> so it's such a, I just think it's such a brilliant way of talking about the way we remember things. And how memories make sense. Yeah. And, and I think you can then extend that to to narratives too or, you know, songs because they don't have to make sense. Mm. You know, they they in a in a in a sense the if they are jumbled up and all in the wrong order, they're truer mm. than if they're a they have a beginning and a middle and an end. Yeah. And one more thing just on that essay is you say you had a chat with an author, which is was it Nick? Papa Dimitriou? Mr. Papa Dimitriou, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah author of Scarp. Right. Um, yeah, and uh, Barnet Resident, the, Lo- the London Perambulator, <laughs> who's, uh, again, you know, I think is actually a genius. And, and I don't think it, it does him any good to be a genius. I think it's a lonely and existence plagued with a lot of suffering, but I do think he's a genius. And out of all the, the so-called kind of psychogeographers of that time, He's the only one I think is worth anything whatsoever, you know. 
um, I think he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I was very glad to be able to talk with him. Because you were talking about some of these childhood memories and he suggested you map out the zone, as you say. Yeah, no, he said, um, I mean, what did he say? Where are you from? You know, because we were talking a bit about the area, Child's Hill in Barnet, where he lives, which at the time I I didn't live anywhere near there, but I lived in a in a place where his mum had grown up and where a lot of things that he describes in Scarp had happened in his childhood, you know. And so he was curious, I think, to know where it was I was from. And I told him and he immediately said, he came up with three images. He said, greasy tank tracks uh, in an army wood, suburban curtains twitching with who knows what hiding behind them. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't remember the third, it's probably unprintable the third, you know, but... um, And I thought, you know, you're not far wrong, actually. Mm. You've got a real feel for, for, for place, you know. And, and you obviously understand the kind of place that, that we all, the, the, the clientele come from between motorways with Aldershot and all the army woods there and nothing to do and so on. Um, so he said, yeah, you've got to map out that zone in, you know, kind of encouraging me in the way that he is mapping out the, the escarpment at the, the, the kind of, I guess it would be the north, the northeast side of the borough of Barnet. And and I just thought to myself, but I can't because the, the the landscape and the place that I write about doesn't exist anymore. It's only there in in my memory and the memory of my friends and the people who are around at the time. So I can't walk around as a psychogeographer in this area because everything about it has changed, mm. and there's no there's nothing to there's no psycho element to to really pick up on anymore. It's all just in my head. And I haven't been there in in decades. I mean, I think when we were kids, the main ambition we had was to leave as quickly as possible and as far away as possible. And you have to bear that in mind <laughs> if you get nostalgic later. In those days, there was a kind of fever that pushed me out of the front door the pale exhaust fumes parked by Broadwater Farm, or the grubby road that eventually leads to Enfield, Turkish supermarkets after chicken restaurant after spare parts shop. Everything in my life felt like it was coming to a mysterious close. I could hardly walk to the end of the street without feeling there was no way to go except back. The dates I've had that summer... I was going to talk a bit now about the spoken word clientele songs. Yeah. So on the, on the new album, there's Conjuring Summer In and My Childhood. Uh, but there are earlier songs which are more story-like, The Dance of the Hours, which is great. But that's where the story is kind of buried under the music. But there are yeah. three three songs which I think of as being linked in some way, which is Losing Harringay, The Green Man, and The Museum of Fog. All three songs mention pubs, for a start. But um, it feels like they're all in some way about the past intersecting with the present. Is, is that Am I on the right track? I think you very much are. I think they're very explicitly about that. Mm, Um, mm. I mean, Losing Harangay was the first one and I was very self-conscious about it because um, it was a piece that I'd written for some kind of, I can't remember which, but some kind of fanzine or magazine. And I wrote it like just in 15 minutes, you know, I just wrote it about as fast as, as you can type it. 
And then we had this piece, um, this piece of music uh, for in the Strange Geometry sessions, which was sounding really quite quite nice. It had a kind of a flow and a cycle to it, but it perhaps sounded too, I don't know, too pleasant. And, and it wasn't going anywhere, you know, they didn't really have a focus to it. So it was either just junk it or let's try and do something with it. And I sat down and I remember like I was smoking a fag at the time and there was a Canadian uh, sound engineer. She's like, a oh, typical British guy smoking a fag before doing a vocal performance. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, actually, I'm going to read a story. <laughs> so it doesn't <laughs> count. And um, <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, my God, Brian O'Shaughnessy, the producer, who did like bloody Screamer Delico and um, My Bloody Valentine sitting there about to press record. And I'm going to read this story. And J- I think James was there too. I thought they're going to crucify me. You know, they're going to laugh me out of the studio. And so I read it. And the weird thing was that it fitted exactly the length of the music. So the music existed before the story, but the story actually, when I finished reading it, the music ended. And I felt that was a good augury in a way. It felt like it might have worked. And then I looked through the glass of the studio and nobody was like like making faces at me or doing like wanker signs or whatever, you know? <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's another good augury. And then when I, I went through, they were just like, wow, this is this is really both a, a step forward for the clientele as a band and a really, it really works as a track. Mm. So I thought, well, I got away with it that time, you know. And funnily enough, that's the song that, I mean, it's one of the songs that people have the most extreme kind of reaction to yeah. out of the clientele's catalogue of, of just emotional reaction and, and and I can't understand it because it's so specific to a particular place and a particular set of circumstances, you know. But um, it does seem to have a kind of people who listen to it do seem to have quite a strong emotional response to it. Mm. And I feel like that one, I felt I got a bit big for my boots after that, and <laughs> I decided to to do the Green Man, which has a, a lot of samples of Zinakis, you know the the Greek avant-garde composer. And there's kind of the wind going through, the, the field recording of the wind going through the an old foreign office building that I was working in at the time that's since been demolished. I had a, I had like a, I had a handheld recording device. I was walking around the foreign offices, offices <laughs> with a handheld recording device. I mean, I'm lucky I'm not in jail, you know. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I didn't think that one worked so well. I thought that one was trying too hard, you know. Um, it maybe wasn't such an interesting story. It was a bit less personal. It was more literary. Um, so I wasn't so happy with that one. I didn't think it... I, I really wanted that to go on... If it had worked, I really wanted it to go on Bonfires on the Heath because it, it very much is about that 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 feeling that, that the album Bonfires of the Heath is about, which is... You know, you look into nature and then you realise with a shock that nature's also looking back into you. Mm. It's quite a sort of spooky uh, LSD type type feeling. He was already drunk. The pub jukebugs played in the corner and outside crowds flowed through the Green Park arcades and downhill to the river, sifting through glass-fronted shops leaving for Metroland in the Christmas break. 
I listened because I had nothing better to do. All my friends had gone and he bought me a drink. That winter, he said, I commuted from a house on a large and half-finished estate. There's a line in The Green Man, which I absolutely love, which is... Green Man's kind of essentially about a pub bore, really, meeting this guy yeah. in a pub. And he's telling this story about being haunted by this fantastical figure he glimpsed in childhood. But there's an amazing line, which is that he says, if the world was one degree stranger, one degree more fluid, I could have escaped and joined myself back there. I could have disappeared forever, but it isn't. And I'm stranded here, split into two, getting ready for bed in a dormitory town. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Crikey, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm sorry I unleashed a sentence like that upon the world, really. It's only not filling me with joy right now. Really? Oh, I'm sorry to... But, uh, <laughs> but I, I love that, the idea that if... Yeah, you just get that sometimes, particularly with nature or memory. Just the idea that if the world was... Just, the laws of reality were just slightly different... They'd yeah, kind of gain this deeper understanding or something. They don't. They wouldn't need to be pivotally different. They yeah. would just need to be ever so slightly forward from where they are, and yeah. then everything would be all right, and the circle would complete. Yeah, but they're not, and they never will be, and they never can be, and so we go to bed in a dormitory town. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of um, one time I was walking to work. And I was very, you know, when you're so hungover, you're basically just still drunk, you know. Oh, yeah. And um, I was walking to work and I saw this blackbird and the, the bird just looked at me with this such, this kind of look of total kind of understanding. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you just sense, it was just such a weird moment. It's like, it is that thing of, you know, if the, the world was a slightly different, slightly stranger. It felt like I could have just swapped places with the blackbird or something. It was a really kind of funny moment. There's a great um, story by uh, the Argentinian writer Julio Cortazar, Cortazar, sorry, where that exact that happens. He's looking at an axolotl in an aquarium, and suddenly the axolotl and him's change places, and he's suddenly looking out at the glass at people. Wow, <laughs> pretty pretty nightmarish. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I remember thinking, if the world was one degree stranger, one degree more fluid, I could have escaped and joined myself back there. Could have disappeared forever. But it isn't. And I'm stranded here, getting ready for bed in a dormitory town. And what was the third one? Was that was it Dance of the Hours? M Museum of Fog. Oh, Museum of Fog, yeah. So that's from a novel that I've written. Um, uh, it's a chapter from the novel. And so um, it, it was partly an attempt to get some of the ideas from the novel to come out. Again, I don't think it worked so well. There's too much going on. There's like this singing, there's too many guitars all tangled up. Um, and it's, and, and, and again, it's a bit of a failure of imagination, I suppose, that it got put in exactly the same place on the record as Losing Haringey was. We should have done something more ambitious and adventurous with it, I think. Um, that's that's how I feel about it anyway. But I, I like the the actual story. That's that's a true story. You know, that's that actually happened. Um, you went to see this band? And yeah, so there was a pub called The Fox and Hounds. Still is actually in Fleet. Yeah. And it had a back, back room. Yeah. Um, and um, there was bands who always played there. 
there would be bands who sounded like, um, you know, they would do cover version bands who'd come do cover versions of the jam or, mm. or whatever. And they, they, the band I'm talking about, they had a, they had a, a manager who, who owned a house near the pub and they, everyone would go after they played back to his house to drink more and all sorts of weird and wonderful things happened, I suppose, you know, like there's obviously a lot of exaggeration in that story, but it's quite close to the truth. You know, we, we did get kicked out of that pub by the landlady when the police came because we we're 16 and she said, we were like, we didn't care. We were like, it's you who's going to get into trouble, not us. But she said, you've got to get out right now. Well, where can we go? The, the cops are coming in the front door. She's like, get out, go into the toilets and jump out the windows and then run as fast as you can down the canal because the pub backs onto the canal. Yeah. I hasten to add that the Fox and Hounds is under new management now. Okay. And, and a very different place. Very sure, different. I'm sure. Town. Much yeah. more upmarket. Yeah. But yeah. But um, so we did. And we just jumped out the window and we legged it off. We were pissing ourselves laughing, you know. <laughs> like we got, we because we were really drunk for one thing. And we were like 15 or 16. <laughs> and um, we'd got away from the police. Um, so yeah, it's based on kind of true true elements and then it yeah. extrapolates a little bit maybe goes like a degree further yeah. than what actually happens you know because it's it's like it's happening to you now but you suddenly re- revisit that childhood experience that's what's so amazing about it but it's like it's it's what we're talking about with signs again you don't revisit it it revisits you right you're not in control yeah. you know it's um it's it's something that that you can't control, that you, that you can't repeat, that you can never find again. Yeah. I always thought when I first heard it, and you talk about the band, I always think it sounds like Sun. You know, that band Sun with the droning amps and everything. Sun-O. Sun-O. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose it was based, the band was more based on like what, the stuff that was going on at the time, which was more, what are they called? Disco Inferno. You know, they had this idea of taking, um, using, a, having a kind of like a MIDI guitar. So they would get a sample and they would try and load it up onto a, onto a MIDI guitar and right. each note they played on the guitar would trigger that sample. And their equipment was always going wrong because it was like <laughs> the mid-90s and yeah. technology hadn't caught up with what they wanted to do. They're an amazing band though. Mm. So I kind of had them in mind, I think. Mm. Uh, but just imagining that we'd gone to see this bloody band who are always playing like you know songs by paul weller in a in a depressing songs by depressing man in a depressing town in a <laughs> on a depressing day of the week and suddenly you might have disco inferno playing instead with the phantom yeah yeah the room was cramped and dark and during a momentary hush the singer on the stage was introduced as the phantom he was wearing the kind of plastic mask sold in our shows and a superhero's cape Several other musicians formed a circle and just turned in on each other like wagons on a prairie. I looked around me. I did want to ask you about the influence of surrealism because you've mentioned that a few times and that does seem to be something that is often talked about. Yeah. In relation to your 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 music and lyrics. Um, shall, shall I give a background on that? Yeah, for, sure. For readers who, or sorry, listeners who, who when they hear the word surrealism, they think of Salvador Dali, mm. you know, or um, his ilk. 
Yeah. So this is this is not that. It's not about paintings of kind of giraffes being on fire or anything. It's 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 about literature. It's about books, words, uh, narratives, and um, that's really like surrealism was an art movement that was partly painting and partly um, literary. And um, I didn't know that uh, up until at least I was at least in my early twenties. I don't think I always just associated it with visual art, but. Um, at a time when I was at university, um, people were always saying to me, like, oh, um, you know, you can't, don't, you know, Martin Amos is, is the author you should be reading. And it felt to me there was this, like, pervading kind of sense of nastiness in the, in the culture, uh, cynicism and nihilism. And I really didn't respond to it. I didn't find it particularly interesting. Uh, but then the alternative seem to be a quite sort of sentimental, you know, um, way of writing that didn't really take on board the complexities of being an adult. And I didn't really like that either. So I was wandering around and I went to Compendium Books, which is a wonderful bookshop that used to be on Camden Lock back in the day. The only bookshop I've ever been to that could that could rival it is, um, is City Lights in San Francisco. I mean, it's just such a great place. And I bought, um, James was into this stuff too. So he was saying, why don't you buy this? And I bought this book called um, The the Deedless Book of Surrealism, The Identity of Things. Um, and it's a collection of, um, it's a collection of, I've got it in my hand now. Mm. It's a collection of prose um, by surrealist writers from the 1920s. And the first one I read was this um this guy, Georges Limbourg, The Hand of Fatma. And the first paragraph goes, there are evenings when the sky has the colour and taste of ash, like an undefined sadness. It has a softness of this infinitely fine dust, so much that one feels there could be none finer in the whole world. That suggests it's a matter definitively consumed. Has it given all its smoke and aroma, a female finger dipped in a vase containing the remains of a great passionate ardour descends from the sky and traces very lightly a sign on the brow. And I thought, wow, that's hilarious and beautiful at the same time. And I have no idea what it means. Yeah. Um, the next one is, um, is uh, uh, our old favorite, um, Joe Busquet. He's, he was a guy um, who was uh, a, a, a quite a major Belgian surrealist writer. He was, he was paralyzed in the first world war. He was, a bullet hit him in the spine and he was bedridden for the rest of his life. And he wrote, and he lived a long time and he wrote these beautiful kind of hallucinatory narratives and kept a big correspondence up with people like Andre Breton, the, the Pope of surrealism, you know, um, but, and, and again, it was, you know, the, the loveliest of stars has raised up the night so so as to blind me with its infinite presence. My gaze is submerged like a silver ring tossed into the flood of my heart. Mm. Note that when I stole that, I changed the word tossed to thrown. There you go. See, I was a little <laughs> bit self-conscious there. I was thinking about words there. But yeah, so I, I was reading this and I thought this seems like a third way to me, you know, like it's it's not 
sentimental and it's not nasty and it's about love and it's exciting and it's and I don't understand it mm. and um as time went on I read more there were there were these little novellas really I suppose like uh, Nadja by Andre Breton where he talks about meeting someone in the streets of Paris late at night who's this 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 lady who um, he goes on adventures with and Paris Peasant by um, Louis Aragon and particularly actually for me Philippe Soupeau Last Nights of Paris is a, is a great novel and I used to go to like um, in the 90s I used to go and look up at the the big clock in King's Cross in the middle of the night if I couldn't sleep I'd walk down there and King's Cross in those days was a very dangerous place you know it wasn't like it is now it was it was full of gangsters really and and you could get yourself into a lot of trouble really quickly if you weren't careful but you could see this clock tower from the from the from the St Pancras hotel shining over the streets and and you know it felt like there was a lot of possibilities there i don't think maybe it's just being young but i don't think if i went to king's cross at night now i'd feel there were a lot of possibilities <laughs> i feel like or you could go to like tortilla to eat a burrito or you could you know blah 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 yeah but then it, it felt like there was more going on and, and, and it had the same flavour as those particular, these little novellas of mm. the, the, these guys. And then, mm. you know, wonderful poets like Robert Desnos, you know, again, I'm, I'm giving away my secrets here. I'm showing you what <laughs> I've stolen, but there's a great poem by him called Never Anyone But You. And he talks, uh, he talks about... Uh, never anyone but you despite stars and loneliness despite the trees mutilated at nightfall and so on and so on and then you'll recognize this from fables of the silver link i think it's a sunday marked by nightingales singing in the tender green woods the boredom of little girls staring at a cage a canary flutters around in in while in the empty street the sun slowly moves its thin line across the hot sidewalk never anyone but you and there's there's a clientele song called never anyone but you you know, um, there's so as a as a whole, I think, you know, I was just so fascinated by by the way these guys wrote the automatic writing, the, the declamatory way they write, you know, like, again, my childhood on um, the new records, my childhood is this, my childhood is that. Yeah. And it's all stolen from a poem by Andre Breton called Free Union, where he talks about his wife. His wife, he says, my wife, whose hair is a brush fire, whose thoughts are summer lightning, whose waist is an hourglass, whose waist is the waist of an otter caught in the teeth of a tiger, whose mouth is a bright cockade with the fragrance of a star of the first magnitude, whose teeth leave prints. You know, it's the declamatory thing. My wife is this, my wife is that, my love is this, my love is that. I read that today, actually. There's quite, he really dwells on the buttocks at one point, doesn't he? Yeah, well, the, again, I didn't steal that, obviously. You know, There was things that were okay in the 1920s that in this day and age we have to, we have to leave. Yeah. I want to talk, Robin, about one more poem, okay? Yeah, sure. Because this is really important to me, like the declamatory style, right? Mm. My, my, um, my wife is, my wife is. And this is a poem written by another major surrealist writer, Paul Eloir, but it was written in 1943, mm. which is obviously not a great time to be in Paris. Uh, the Gestapo were around. And he uses the same kind of rhetorical style. And he says, in the name, 
So I'm not going to try and read it in French. I've got the translation here, but um, in the name of laughter in the street, in the name of fruits covering, covering flowers, in the name of the men in prison, in the name of the women deported, in the name of all our comrades martyred and massacred for not accepting the shadow, we must drain our rage and make the iron rise up to preserve the high image of the innocent everywhere hunted and who will triumph everywhere. Can you imagine that poem going from hand to hand mm. in occupied Paris? You know, it's amazing, yeah. It's, uh, it sort of tells you what poetry could be in terms of the, the just incredible intensity and the way it could move mountains. It can move people's, change people's minds, change cowards into brave people. And Eluard was doing that, you know, in, in Paris, while the Gestapo were around. Desnos ended up in a concentration camp. You know, they, they were serious people. They weren't just dilettantes. They weren't just messing around. They were incredibly serious people who stood up for what they they believed in um, when it really counted. So, yeah, I'm really interested in those people. I'm really interested in their ideas. Sorry, that was a very long answer no, about surrealism. No, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. Because, I, I mean, since when we first met earlier in the year, I, you recommended Nadia. And um, I read I read Nadia and Last Nights of Paris, and I loved them. And I think the thing I really loved about Nadia, so as you say, it's about Breton meeting this woman in Paris, who it turns out has kind of severe mental health problems. Her real name yeah. was, was Leona. Yeah. In, in the book, she's Nadia. But the thing that Breton finds is, is that she's like this embodiment of surrealism because the language she uses is just electric. It's amazing. You know, it's, that's the thing that made me kind of love these books, I think, is its understanding about language being transformative in some way. And they're also true accounts. So they're like the Strange Happenings Investigation Group. Yeah. That's what I love about it too. Yeah, yeah. That they're doing the same thing. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're experiencing things and maybe not being entirely honest about the way they write it up. But, you know, it's not, it's not like some kind of attempt to create a story or a narrative or a book or, you know, it's, it's them talking about what really happened. And I love that side of it. There's a bit when Nadia is looking at a fountain with Breton and she says the, the water that she says the water is our thoughts. It's so weird. It's so amazing. You know, that's our thoughts going up and down. It's just so, it just comes from another place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what did he say? Beauty will be convulsive or will mm. not be at all. Yeah. You know, and I think that, that we read it, we read it in translation. We read it as English people. And I'm really lucky because I've got um, Louis-Philippe, Philippe Auclair, who will talk to me about the French view of all this, mm. you know, um, and that, and, and the French have a very different view of it than we do. I think that generally speaking, they see that kind of very um, uncompromising, fanatical way of following something. For them, that, that reminds them too much of Hermann Goering, mm. you know, and, and I think it became something that they wanted to move on from from then. Yeah. But it's, these, these, these writers are not particularly well-known in English, I don't think, mm. um, you know, compared to people like Sartre or Camus or other French writers. And, and it's really interesting to read them. I think they, 
they've given me a lot anyway. They've yeah. the curse of being a a musician is that you you tend to look for what you can use rather than what you enjoy. But they've mm. given me lots to use. Cheers. What are you drinking? <laughs> I went down to um, to Sussex, mm. to Burning Gap at the weekend, so I got this. There's my favourite brewery, it's Beak Brewery. Oh, cool. Nice. Um, there's going to be a clientele beer soon, actually. Oh, so, great. Did we tell you about that? Yeah, you mentioned that. So. Yeah. Nice. But, <laughs> I wish it was Beak who was doing it, because I love, I just love their, their stuff. They're from Lewis. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I've got. I'm drinking my supply that I brought back of theirs. Nice. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid I'm just drinking Stella Artois, but you know. As always, Robin, as always. Yeah. It's, just... <laughs> it's a bit of a calling card, isn't it? It is, it is. <laughs> I like it actually. It shows uh, It shows originality, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. I feel like I couldn't do this podcast and not ask you about reflections after Jane. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's vulgar to talk about streaming numbers, but it's had 16 million streams, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Compare it to running up that hill. <laughs> yeah. And the, the details fade to naught, don't they, after <laughs> that? Yeah. But why do you think that song has struck such a chord? Oh, I don't know. You know... Um, we recorded it in the attic of a thatched cottage. That might mm. be the reason. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, are you, are, you, are you sick of talking about that song? Or is it... No, not really. I don't know that there's much to say about it. Mm. I, I mean, I learned new chords when I did it. I learned a minor ninth and a, and a major ninth. Um, but I don't really know. I don't know. It's got a nice warm sound, hasn't it? Yeah. Like it's got that, that eight-track sound, but it works in such a way that it doesn't necessarily feel that lo-fi. It just feels mm. like something being beamed in from some radio station somewhere else, mm. which is not deliberate at all. We didn't try to make it like that, but that's that's how it ended up. And even the video we did for it really had a lot of atmosphere too. Just like of us, I've been out, you know, I was in my twenty early 20s. I've been out all night, hadn't gone to bed. And they they were like, walk up this path, walk down this path. You can just see how annoyed I am with the guys <laughs> making the video. Yeah. And like just just had enough. Yeah. But um the video look came out really nicely too. Yeah. We took the train down to Woking and filmed people's back gardens. So I don't know. Um mm. I think it's like it was as a song, it was written so quickly. It really? was just like ten minutes and the whole thing was finished. So maybe that's a sign that that it's good. Mm. You know, I think if you really have to work on something and polish it up and, oh, should I have this bit here or that bit there and you can't decide, then usually that's a sign that you're not necessarily working on anything that interesting, mm. you know. But, yeah, it's, it's done well on Spotify, yeah. It seems to capture a certain... There's something of the Ray Davis of Waterloo Sunset about it, this kind of almost lonely observer looking down at people and, and the, you know, without getting too highbrow there's something of the 
T.S. Eliot's Unreal City in it a bit as well, I think, with the, the workers and passing threes and fours. Well, it was it was um, based very much written at the time I was reading the 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 surrealist book I was talking about. It was written at the same time that we were making those visits to Compendium Books. Um, very much inspired by the the Joe Busquet short story that I read from earlier, um, and trying to copy that kind of feeling of just constantly shifting crystalline beautiful images you know mm. oh, it's a it's a beautiful song i'm glad you think so i think for me like you know i've heard it i've played it so many times actually do you ever resent playing it then no 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 i'm i'm not that kind of i wouldn't be that arrogant what i've tried to do actually since playing it is to to hit the blue note a bit more with the vocals so the bit when it goes up to the the B minor ninth that the butterflies with the word gilded. Mm. I've always tried to go slightly under the note and hit the blue note. And so I amuse myself by, by doing that and seeing if I can play the, and then at the end, not completely screwing up the guitar solo. It's always (laughs) (laughs) extra points if I don't, you know. That's nice. I remember Nick Talbot from Gravenhurst saying he did, he did a tour with uh, broadcast and Trish Keenan said, Basically, what you're saying that if you ever bored of playing a song, just do something slightly different each time you play it live. Yeah. yeah. Look at Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Extreme example. The reggae yeah. version of Reflections After Jane will be unveiled on the US <laughs> tour 2023. <laughs> I guess finish up with this one about when when I interviewed you the other week, you mentioned that you'd always had a specific vision with the band. And I think that's what I most admire about you and find inspiring about the band, really, is that you've always stuck to your guns. And I guess I wanted to ask, have you always had a very clear idea about the music you wanted to make, even from a young age? Yeah. I mean, you could... It's a really hard question to answer, but Mm. one of the things that I've always held true to is this kind of idea, or I've always tried to hold true to, is this idea of chamber music. And by that, I don't mean like good vibrations or here, there and everywhere. I mean, when you record a song, if you have a string quartet, for instance, as an example, you can hear each of the lines each of the instruments in that string quartet it doesn't ever degenerate into a cloud of like sappy noise it's quite hard you know you hear the cello you can hear the viola playing with the cello and you can hear the two uh, violins playing with them too you can hear the hi-hat you can hear the bass drum you can hear the bass and you can hear the guitar and the vocals and that idea that it's like an intimate sound, you know, it's not like a big spectresque sound, but it's an intimate sound that faces you and where where there are different instruments interlocking, 
you can still separate those instruments from the the interlocking elements. And that was a philosophy of recording, really, of mixing, I suppose, that, that I've always held to or, or tried to help, hold to. You know, and and then we had rules. We had these stupid rules when we, we sat down in the pub after watching the band who played the jam covers and watching lots of other bands from, from where we were. And we said, no, under no circumstances, any blues solos. <laughs> under no cir- circum- circumstances, any shouting. And we added to that actually two decades later and we said, absolutely never, ever, ever, any ukuleles <laughs> and so we've 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 kind of we've held to that since but i think we've we haven't been too rigid about about stuff we've we've brought in you know other other ideas other types of music that that, that inspired us or that we just heard along the way you know the whole sub bass trap rhythms type stuff that that is on some of the new record and is definitely on anything new that I've been writing. It just comes from being in playgrounds with my son and, and hearing teenagers sodcasting it and thinking, wait a minute, this is young people's music that sounds really, really amazing and just as good as anything from my generation. You know, I don't know who it is, but I'll try and I'll try and see if I can replicate in some way in the music I make that the sense of space that's in that. Yeah. The sense of focus that's in it, you know. I suppose that's what I mean. Everything everything has always been very focused. Even if it's been like a bit a bit hazy, you can still hear everything. You can still still hear what everyone's doing. Mm. And that's important, I think. Yeah. And I did just want to end with there's a, another great quote from the book which is where you say I went I went to bed haunted, pushed to a limit where nothing can coalesce in the mind except that itch to put your finger on what it is you're feeling. I didn't and I never have. I I love that idea of trying to define something that's kind of beyond description. That seems very important to to your lyrics sometimes, I think. Yeah, but slightly annoyingly, the, um, the person who who makes most sense about it is A.L. Rouse, the Cornish poet, who's got the epigraph in the book. And I'll, you know, this is, this is something I've felt all my life since I first ever remember is what he describes. And that is, you know, he says, I remember well the peculiar purity of the blue sky seen through the white clusters of apple blossoms in spring. Note the word peculiar. I remember looking at it one morning on my way to school. It meant something for me, what I couldn't say. It gave me an unease at heart, some reaching out towards perfection. Spring, the pure sunlight falling over the hills in waves under the cloudless blue. It was always morning, early morning in that daydream. And I totally identified with that from childhood. You know, that, that it meant something to me, what I couldn't say, but it was peculiar. Yeah, and um, that that I that feeling came back in in really bad fevers, or when I was when I was a kid, and it came back in daydreams, and it's what I've been trying to chase. You know, it's a will o' the wisp. You, I will never catch it. I will never catch it. But I'm trying to chase it, and I'm trying to share that chase 
with other people, some of whom understand what I'm trying to do. And the fact that more people do seem to understand it nowadays is, is, is wonderful for me. I love it. Thank you so much for listening to the Cleontelle podcast. In next week's episode, I'll be speaking to James again, and he's going to give me a rundown of the Cleontelle discography, album by album. This episode of the Cleontelle podcast was produced, edited, and mixed by me, but thank you so much to Johnny White and to Dave Collingwood for their help with the edit. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at Robin Allender on social media. My website is robinallender.com. You can also check out Johnny White's music and comedy at johnnywhitereallyreally.bandcamp.com. And also please check out Dave Collingwood's website, collingwoodsymbols.com. Dave is a symbol maker, so if you're a drummer and are interested in getting hold of some handmade symbols made by a master craftsman, then please check it out. See you next week. Thank you.